to make your old furniture look like new. For finest reupholstering, here's what you do. For quality work, economical too. Call the Eno Upholstering Service. E-N-O Eno. To make your old furniture look like new, for finest reupholstering, here's what you do. Call the Eno Upholstering Service. E-N-O Eno. I love America. It's been my home all my life. Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. If you don't know the past, you're only doomed to repeat it. Welcome to Public Access America. This is your history. This is your country. This is America. Join us in listening to some of history's America's best speeches. Created by Jarcodes Productions. Go back in time with us right now on Public Access America. Welcome to Appleton Public Library. My name is Elizabeth Eisen. I'm the adult programming librarian here at the library. Um, tonight, we are very pleased to have Lawrence University Assistant Professor of Government, Arnold Schober. He's here to help us make sense of a system which has caused controversy for some time. Please welcome Professor Schober, Electoral College. Thank you very much. Uh, and given the vast masses there are, if there at any time you wish to stop me, Please do. Um, I, even though I do lecture at Lawrence, that doesn't mean I like to hear my voice too much. So, here we go. My talk tonight is called The People or the Nation, The American Electoral College and Its Alternatives. Uh, these three men up here, two of them I'm sure you'll recognize, the one on the left, maybe not. That is Benjamin Harrison. All three of these men became president despite having lost the popular vote. They became president, however, just as the founders intended because of the workings of the Electoral College. We'll look a little bit at their cases later on tonight, uh, and you may judge for yourselves whether it's rightly or wrongly they came in, but nevertheless, this is history and this is what happened. The American presidency is the most visible political office in the world. Okay, anywhere in the world, people will know the American president. They may not always know who it is, but they've heard about it. And more Americans vote for president than for any other political office, if you count up all the votes for Congress and this kind of thing. In fact, in 2004, 9 million more Americans voted for president than any other office. Another way to say that is 8% of all voters vote only for president and for nothing else on that ballot. They get the ballot in the booth and say, oh my goodness, there's all these offices. I don't know any of the names. So I've heard of Bush and Kerry. Let me pick one of them. That's enough for me for today. Four more years and I'll get my gumption up to do it again. Okay. So the presidency is a, a draw to the polls and people are very interested in elections, especially close ones, as we're in this year yet again. But few people understand how the president actually gets his and perhaps someday her office. In other words, why does the Constitution turn millions of votes into just 538 electoral ballots? That is, why does this, 
Okay, red, blue map by percentage of Republican or Democrat, Democratic, so purple is about 50-50. Why does the Electoral College turn this map of the 2000 election into this? Poof, red or blue. And there's really not much variation in between. And this is the way elections work here. So this evening, I will discuss the transformation of millions of votes into 538 electoral ballots in three parts. First, I'll give you the Civics 101 version, how does the Electoral College actually work? Most boring part, but we got to understand that first. Second, I'll review some proposals people have made for changing or abolishing or replacing the Electoral College with something else. Close to 70% of Americans say they like something else, but we still have this, so we might talk a little bit about why that is. Third, I will argue that, in fact, the Electoral College is not that bad of an idea after all. Um, there is a nice set of books in the back, some of which argue the opposite. So if you're interested in arguments from the other side, you can look at some of those. Because uh, some people are very upset, perhaps, even, that the Electoral College still exists in America. And there are good reasons for getting rid of it. And I hope I don't give those arguments too short of shrift here. Uh, although I, I like the Electoral College, I'm sorry. Uh, please disagree with me if you like, however. Okay. Oops, getting ahead of myself. The key question tonight, and the core of the argument is, who shall elect the president? Should it be the people, that is, a sum of individual votes counted up, and whoever gets most of those wins, or should the nation elect the president? And what I mean by that is, do we want the president to represent a broad geographic segment of the country, rather than relying just on a few pockets of lots of votes? Uh, so that will be the question that drives the rest of the presentation tonight. Part one. In 1967, the American Bar Association conducted a or produced a study on the Electoral College. They were worried about uh, how um, Wallace, who was running for president in the South, might kind of turn this 1968 election into a nightmare for the Democrats and the Republicans, and no one knew what was going to happen. So the ABA produced this report on the Electoral College. In their conclusion, they minced no words, was that the Electoral College is archaic, undemocratic, complex, ambiguous, indirect, and dangerous. How on earth can something so simple be this bad? Okay. Okay. How does it work? The Electoral College is, in fact, extremely simple. To become president, all you need is a majority of electoral votes. Unlike most American elections, where the candidate who is elected needs more votes than anyone else, to be elected through the Electoral College, you need more than 50%. Okay, so imagine for a second that in the 8th Congressional District, we have three candidates running, Steve Kagan, John Gard, and somebody else, some Green Party candidate, perhaps, who would get, will pretend lots of votes. Okay. Um, in that case, whoever got more votes than either of the other two candidates would win. So John Garr gets 39%, Steve Kagan gets 38%, the Green Party candidate gets whatever else. John Gard would win, even though most voters chose someone else. Okay? The Electoral College doesn't work that way. In the Electoral College, you have to have a majority. You have to have more than half. Okay. Since 1961, that means you need 270 votes. That's more than 50%. Uh, in 1961, the District of Columbia got additional votes, so that's why that year, and that's the number both McCain and Obama are looking for this year, 270. Okay. Something often lost in this discussion, and perhaps rightfully so, is that electors are in fact real people. Okay, you see the map on election night turning red and blue? There were actually people who cast those ballots. These are the North Dakota electors, there are three of them, casting their ballot in 2000. I had a terrible time finding photographs of any of them because most electors really have no choice how they're going to vote. But nevertheless, here they are. They assemble in, in December to cast their ballots in the state capitol. They send those on to Washington, D.C., where um, the sitting vice president of the United States counts the ballots by hand and announces the winner. So sometimes students ask, not as much anymore because they're kind of forgetting who Al Gore was, but does that mean that Al Gore in 2000 counted the ballots and then declared George W. Bush the winner? Yes, that was his job. 
Okay, so that's how it works. Very simple. Then the president is sworn in later on. Now, the Constitution grants each state an equal number of votes to its representation in Congress. So Wisconsin has eight members of the House of Representatives and two senators. That means Wisconsin gets 10 electoral votes. Minnesota also has 10. California, our largest state, has 55 whopping electoral votes. Um, no state may have fewer than three. Question? Wisconsin used to have 11, right? That is correct. Um, the Electoral College, one of its benefits, perhaps, is that it kind of tracks population. Uh, so as states get bigger, they get more votes. As they get smaller relative to other states, they get fewer. Wisconsin is getting smaller relative to other states, and so we lost a congressional seat. So Milwaukee now has one rep instead of two. Um, so yes, it's, we're, we're influenced slightly less. The nice thing about matching um, congressional representation with electoral votes is that each state's influence, theoretical influence on the president, is the same influence that state would have on federal legislation. Okay, this is all the votes we got in Congress. Why should we have more or less on the president? Well, that kind of makes sense to my mind if that's how we're going to, if we're going to have an electoral college. Let's do it this way. This kind of makes sense. Okay. In 1848 to uh, when Wisconsin became a state, Wisconsin had four electoral votes, which was the same as Texas. Okay, so at one time, Wisconsin was on equal footing with Texas. No longer, but it was once that way. Okay. So, I think we have a good black slide. Why is this college so dangerous? Well, here's the rub. The Constitution doesn't say how those electors should cast their ballots. In fact, the Constitution says the state legislature should decide how the electors will cast their ballots. And this is one reason the ABA's report had so much trouble. It's because there wasn't a uniform standard. And in fact, the U.S. Supreme Court has repeatedly ruled that whatever the state legislature decides is A-OK, -okay because the Constitution explicitly says the state legislatures have this right. There's no, no fuzzy readings in here. The Constitution says it. Many states, usually smaller states, have alleged that this is unfair to them. The Supreme Court says, tough, you're going to have to amend the Constitution, okay, which is unlikely to happen, at least in small things. What that means is, historically, there have been several different ways that states have decided to allocate those electoral votes. We are most familiar with the last one up here, winner take all, because... Every, every state in the United States except Maine and Nebraska use it, which means you win the most votes in your state, you get all of the electoral votes. So in 2000, that was Gore. In 2004, uh, that was Kerry, even though Bush was like 49.99999% of the vote. He got zero electoral votes. Okay, you can, there were states that they were the other way. So the losing side is kind of miffed by this. But the winning side is quite pleased that I only have to work half as hard as I might otherwise, and I still get the full benefit of all 10, in our case, electoral votes. So that's one way. It was not until this century, however, that most states used that method. It seems simple, so you'd think maybe it happened that way originally, but no, that's relatively recent addition. Instead, Legislative selection, where the state legislature decided how the electors should vote, was the majority uh, position. Okay, so the state legislature assembles and says, who do we want for president? That's how the electors should vote. In fact, in 1796, nine of the 15 states did this. Okay, uh, It was a majority up through the 1820s when every state except South Carolina dropped it, but... After the Civil War, both Florida, when it came back into the Union, and Colorado in 1876 used legislative selection. So instead of having people vote at all, the legislature took care of that decision for them. So in 1876, there was no presidential election in Colorado because the legislature did it for everyone. Okay? Saves money, time, campaigning, expense. It's kind of a good deal for the candidates, I suppose. Just pay a couple legislators more money and voila! It's kind of cheap. So if we are, we're concerned about the rising cost of campaigns, we might consider that as a, an improvement. Um, it sounds kind of anti-democratic, but remember that the U.S. Senate was also elected this way until 1916. 
state legislature, legislators selected U.S. senators through the, until the early 20th century, so it wasn't as foreign um, to their frame of mind. Second one up here, district selection, which is what Maine and Nebraska use currently. Whoever wins the majority in each congressional district gets one electoral vote, and then whoever wins the majority in the state gets two, the two senators, right? One for each member of the House, and then bonus if you win the majority overall. Uh, that was the closest competitor for legislative selection for many years. Uh, Michigan, in fact, used it up until about 1900 uh, as a way to do that. What, what would have happened if you had an equal number of districts? How would you figure out who the senator would get the two? Uh, if, if you won the popular vote in that state. Now, you could have a tied popular vote, and then I don't know what. They'd probably flip a coin, which is what most state, most laws are, most state election laws are set up that way. If there's a tie, we flip. Um, but... To my knowledge, it's never happened. It, but that doesn't mean it couldn't. Okay. So these are historical means. And I bring these up just to say that because we use winner to take all, doesn't mean we couldn't return to one of these other methods. We could reform it. States were very quick to change their electoral systems many times in the 19th century. So reform of the electoral college rather than abolishing it is not really that unlikely. It is certainly something legislators have been willing to do in the past. Okay. Sir. Okay, ma'am. Are you going to get into why winner take all pros and cons of that? Yes. Okay. But um, please ask. My point is if Michigan actually had the um, experience of the district selection, which um, sounds like it would be the fair way to go, okay. but then they chose to go to winner take all. That makes it very interesting, the whole idea that, now, why is it that they want to do that? What you're going to tell us. Sure. Well, the short answer is that uh, winner-take-all kind of emphasizes the importance of your state. Okay, in, in um, 2004, Colorado had a constant state constitutional amendment to change how they apportioned their electoral votes so they would be proportional, so that 40% of the vote, you get... 40% of the electoral votes or whatever the closest integer was. Um, had that passed, it didn't. That means this election cycle, neither McCain nor Obama would be campaigning in Colorado because the polls are about 50-50. Yeah, one of the guys is going to get five and the other four, but, I mean, let's not waste a lot of time. It's only one electoral vote different. But if you get nine electoral votes, well, now both McCain and Obama have to campaign hard because they want nine. Um, and so that's a big advantage. 9-0 is better than 5-4. Uh, so that's some of the thinking behind winner-take-all, is that it makes the state... California, right? I mean, if it were competitive, it's not. But um, if it were competitive, there would be people saying, well, let's split these electoral votes up. Quick question? Or, or yeah, question? party candidates. They are excluded. <laughs> Period. It's, it's nearly impossible. And... At the very end, I'll explain a little bit about that. But you have to have a, a, a really strong third party in single states. Okay, so the Green Party could do well nationally by racking up 5% everywhere, which would mean that maybe they could have won D.C. if you stacked all the votes into D.C., let's say. But because it's spread out thinly everywhere, they don't get any electoral votes. The Electoral College discriminates heavily against third parties. Okay, and that was part of the plan, in fact, early on. To, to well, why do they, the two parties always complain? Well, he's going to steal votes from me, and mm -hmm. he's going to steal votes from him. Mm -hmm. Doesn't make any difference, does it? Well, um, because it, I'll answer this and we'll get back here. Um, because I, it's, with winner-take-all, you have to have more votes than the other guy, so if you are... Al Gore in Florida in 2000, Ralph Nader pulls off a couple of thousand votes. That means you get fewer votes than Bush. Okay, Bush wins all 25 electoral votes. So the third party matters for the major parties in close elections. But the third party isn't going to win any electoral votes. So they can't really become president. Their candidate really can't become president. But they can swing the outcome of the election because of winner-take-all. Had Florida had some other means... 
maybe it would have been 12 votes for Bush, 13 for Gore, or something like that, and no one would have really cared about Ralph Nader in that in 2000. Okay, so that's one of the implications of this. Okay. So you can win the state without having the majority. Yes. Yes. Okay. That's correct. At least the way most election laws work. Why did the framers of the Constitution decide to leave this important decision up to the states? There were two reasons. One was practical and one was philosophical. The practical reason was that in 1796, there was no way to conduct a national election. Okay, it would have taken months. Remember, there's all these bergs out over the Appalachian Mountains that would have taken six months to get their results back. And on the way, the opposing party could have captured the ballot box and stuffed it with their own ballots, and you would have never known. Okay, it just was not practical. So one way to, to, to deal with that is to kind of cut out the number of votes. We know there are X number of ballots. If they don't show up, we know something's wrong. Um, that's also why legislative selection in, in, uh, was popular with state legislatures. Same reason is that we got all the legislators here in the capital. Let's just count them um, rather than having to wait for boxes to come in from who knows where, especially long, thin states, okay, Kentucky, uh, like, like Virginia or North Carolina, okay. Um, the second more, uh, second practical reason was that turnout at national level elections was exceedingly low. Fewer than 20% of eligible voters bother to vote in national elections, okay. Now, we, we only let propertied white men vote, but only 20% of them voted, okay, which means yeah, we could have a popular election, but how popular is it when 80% of people who we allow to vote don't bother? Okay, we have sky-high turnouts in comparison. So the framers of the Constitution thought we could do that or we could do people who care about national government, state legislatures, make a decision about how to do these. So that's the practical reason. Philosophically, though, the Electoral College was made to appeal to state governments. Remember that after the Revolutionary War, the primary competitor to a federal system of government located in New York or Washington, D.C., which is where the capital was moved, was not Great Britain, was not France, was not Spain, but it was state governments. People said, I'm a New Yorker, I'm a Virginian, I'm from Georgia, and they really meant it, not like we would mean it today. They meant, I will go to war with Virginia because I'm a New Yorker. Okay. The Electoral College was sought to create buy-in from those states so that we're going to give the state legislature, the state government, some real power in how the federal government works. And in, in some power selecting the top guy for the job. They didn't want New York going off on its own way. They wanted New York in the union. Okay, this was a little bit of like sugar candy for them. Um, so that's what they're thinking. Okay. Other philosophical reason. Until World War II, state governments spent the vast majority of tax money. The federal government was puny. Okay, so the action was in the states. Why not let the people with the people with the power actually make this big decision? Okay, it made sense to them. And up until World War II, the president was really kind of increasingly important, but not nearly as important as the governor of New York, for example, or the governor of Ohio. Uh, another really big state for many years. Well, still is, but not as important as it once was. Okay. That's how it works. What are some alternatives? We'll get there. Good. You know who that was. <laughs> Most days, when people talk to me and complain about the Electoral College, the real question on their mind why didn't Grover Cleveland win? Probably not. He ran against our friend Benjamin Harrison in 1888. But really, why Al Gore didn't win in 2000? Okay. It's possible for the Electoral College to produce results different than the popular vote if candidates have strong support in fewer areas and medium or weak support everywhere else. In 2000, this happened where Bush had stronger support in more places than Gore. Gore had some places of really deep support. Now, not it wasn't that imbalanced, right? The Electoral College rarely produces, rarely produces results different than the popular vote. But in cases like this, it can, where Gore is racking up like 90% of the vote in Madison. Okay, but they still, there's the rest of Wisconsin to contend with. That 
scored was closer to 50% in most of Wisconsin. So you get a little bit of imbalance there. This occurred just three times, 1888, 1960, and 2000. Um, if you're a history buff, on this subject, you might also hear years 1876 between Hayes and Tilden and 1824 between Adams, Jackson, Clay, and Crawford. Neither of those are good examples. Um, in 1876, this is the end of Reconstruction. The states are coming back into the Union. Uh, several southern states produced multiple popular vote returns and multiple sets of electors, and nobody really knew who, who won that. Okay. A special commission was called together and said, well, maybe uh, it should be Hayes. Okay. So Hayes became the president. It's a very close election, but we don't, there's no good evidence why one set of ballots should have been chosen over the other, so that's not really a good example. In 1824, another example, sometimes people point to why a where a popular vote in the Electoral College produced different results. Andrew Jackson that year did pull more votes than any of his other three candidates. Okay. Uh, Adams, uh, John, John Quincy Adams, Clay or Crawford, but six states still use legislative selection. In those six states, which were 27% of the United States at the time, there was no popular election at all. So, yeah, Jackson got more votes in the states that had popular elections, but enough states didn't have any that we really can't say anything. Enough of those. The three that had actually happened. In 1888, Benjamin Harrison lost the popular vote indisputably to Democrat Grover Cleveland by 100,000 votes. Harrison, though, had won in the North, okay, right after the Civil War. Republicans dominated in the North. The North was much more populous than the South, so he wins the Electoral College, okay, because with a state like New York with like 39 electoral votes, he's way well on his way to winning. Uh, some, in fact, have argued that the reason Harrison lost the popular vote was that there were torrential rains in upstate New York on Election Day. Upstate New York, you were either a Republican or you were dead. So there weren't any Democrats up there, so torrential rains depressed the vote. Um, so Harrison doesn't get those extra Republican ballots up there. Who knows? Nevertheless, it winds up he wins. Cleveland gets his revenge. He comes back and wins in 1892, uh, being our only president to serve two non-contiguous terms. He had served right before Harrison beat him, and he served after Harrison left office. So he, get, he comes back. In fact, he might have run also in 1904, but he decided that three non-contiguous terms would be just too much. So second real case is the election of 1960. This one surprises people because if you look in your history book in sixth grade or whatever, you look in the back of the tables where they have all the results, it shows Kennedy with a, a, a majority, at least a plurality, of popular votes. 1960 had plenty of Bush v. Gore kind of problems, missing ballot boxes, dead people voting, all whole works. But we'll leave those aside. The really strange part was that in three states, in Alabama, in Mississippi, and in Georgia, there, were, there was a slate of Democratic electors, but half of the electors were pledged to vote for Kennedy, and the other half were pledged to vote for a Southern Democrat by the name of Harry F. Byrd, who was kind of your segregation now, segregation forever candidate. So what the history books do now is add up all those votes for the Democrats and say they were Kennedy. That's false. Half of the vote, Democratic votes in Alabama went for the segregationist Democrat instead of Kennedy. So if you take those votes out of Kennedy's total, Nixon wins by 60,000 votes. Almost nothing. He wouldn't have won. The Electoral, the electoral College still would have gone to Kennedy. There's no Kennedy was the right winner, according to the Constitution. But, in fact, Nixon did win the popular vote that year. Um, so it's, it was a close election, almost as close as 2000. You remember that one. I won't go into great details. But in every case, the Electoral College produced a single winner with a pretty minimum amount of fuss. Okay, I grew up part of my life overseas, and when the election results were wrong, we had people burning tires in the streets, people breaking windows, state leather, national legislatures besieged, and all this kind of stuff. We didn't have any of that. We had an electoral college that said, these are the rules, this is how we're going to decide it. And 
I, I will encourage you to think a minute about what the fuss in, in 2000 wound up being. This is the perfect case for changing the Electoral College. But were people really exercised about the Electoral College or were they exercised about ballots? Okay, this famous photograph of an election worker in Florida trying to figure out who on earth did this screwy voter vote for? Why couldn't they punch that thing all the way through? Okay, um, and what we got out of the election of 2000 was allegedly better voting machines. Okay, so big topic, electoral college, or really tiny topic, better ballots. Well, we get better ballots. Uh, which is to say, even though 70% of Americans want to change the electoral college, almost none of them really care enough to do anything about it. It's like, if I ask you, you'll tell me, yeah, I'd like something else, but you never think about it any other time. Okay, so this is why I'm skeptical that much will ever happen with it. Unless, again, this fall, if this fall produces another opportunity for someone to win the popular vote but lose the Electoral College, which might happen uh, if Barack Obama wins the Electoral vote but loses the popular vote, um, maybe something will happen because then both parties will have been hurt by it. Then something might happen. But otherwise, kind of slow. What are then some of the major alternatives we have? First one, okay, here, here are my four. Proportional representation, direct popular election, a so-called national popular vote, and a return to the district vote plan that we've met earlier. Okay, I will present these in order from least likely to most likely, at least in my view. I could be proven wrong tomorrow, but here we go. First one, proportional representation is a system used by most countries in the world. What you have in a proportional representation system is you go to the polls, but you don't see anyone's name on the ballot. You only see parties. You say Republican, Democratic, Green, Socialist Workers of the World, whomever. Okay, all the way down. 247 parties in this country. You've only heard of three or four of them. Okay, but they're all listed. You vote for your party, and then the seats in the legislature, the seats in Congress, are divided up based on those percentages. And a little bit of mathematical tweaking, right? Because it doesn't yield itself nicely to integer and whole numbers. But approximately if Republicans win 48% and Democrats win 52%, that's what Congress will look like. Okay. Now, you don't get to pick who those people are, but you have picked the party and so on. The president would be the leader of the majority party. Okay, so there's not really a separate election. What this means, the great perhaps advantage of it, is that the government is always on the same page. The majority in Congress and the president are always of the same party. You don't have cross-partisan gridlock or whatever. Um, so some people would see that as a great advantage. Another advantage, perhaps, is that the leader of the government, this president, would always be a very experienced politician. You don't get to be the head of a major party without having hung around a long time, okay? Margaret Thatcher, John Major, um, Tony Blair, all these people in Great Britain were in their respective parties forever before they became the leader of the government. So you always have a very experienced person on top. Okay. The detriment to this kind of system, you might imagine, we are kind of attached to our representatives. Okay. My representative helped me get my passport. My representative helped me with my social security check. I know my representative. He's a nice guy. PR, proportional representation, does away with all of that, and you can only think party terms. Okay. So you can th take that either way. Some people would see that as a detriment. Second, the president in this kind of system is twice removed from you and I. Not only do we not pick names on a ballot, but we don't have any say who that leader of the party will be. Okay. Nobody picked Tony Blair to be prime minister in England except the Labor Party. Okay. No voter in the United Kingdom ever cast a single ballot for him except the people who lived in his district. Okay. So if people want a connection or a say on the leader of the country, PR is not really the way to go. Um, but again, there are benefits, so that would be an option. I wouldn't normally include this because you would also require major restructuring of the Constitution, major restructuring, except that none other than the most trusted man in America was an advocate of this system in the late 60s, about the same time that ABA report that I talked about came out. Walter Cronkite was very 
disenchanted with the Electoral College. He thought it was very bad for America. And he went on TV in his in a little monologue at one time saying why we should adopt proportional representation. Um, my sense is that that moment has passed, but right, Uncle Walter here did have a lot of influence back then. Uh, that might have been the opportunity for it. We'll pass on from this the next option, direct popular election, is the simplest to explain. And this is the one most people think is actually in, in force. Count up the votes, add them together, whoever gets the most wins. This is how we select governors and senators and, and state assemblymen and women. Why not the president? Well, there are a couple of drawbacks, in my view, to this particular system. We are accustomed to plurality elections, like I talked about earlier. Um, we would have to decide whether you'd want someone to win the president, presidency by a majority or by a plurality. Why does that make a difference? Well, let's think. We've had several, in fact we have, I have this real number here, 16 presidents who have not won a majority of the popular vote. Now, they all won more than everyone else, except for the three that we noted. Those presidents have an extra hard time making a claim that they represent the country. Bill Clinton twice had less than a majority of people vote for him, so he always had to say, kind of make a show of, I'm working hard to represent everyone, even though I know most of you out there didn't vote for me. Okay, in 1992, Clinton received 43% of the vote, the second lowest in American history. And can anyone name the lowest? Abraham Lincoln. 40% of the popular vote. The least popular president in American history. In fact, his election caused about 13 states to secede from the Union. Partly because they said, Abraham Lincoln does not have a majority. And they were right. He didn't. So, with a direct popular election, we have to think about, do we want a majority or a plurality? Okay, that's kind of background effect. We could deal with that. Okay, another problem is, who's going to count the votes? All right. There are 220 million adults in America, and these days all of them could, pretty much all of them could vote. If you think the federal government is going to cough up money to count 220 million votes, I would suggest that you run for office, okay? They aren't. All right. Even after 2000, when the federal government provided some money to upgrade voting machines, it was nowhere near enough to do what the act said we should do out here in local governments who actually pay for most of elections. Okay, so you're going to have to say with a direct popular election, you're going to probably get someone claiming we need to have uniform ballots or something. That is a gigantic coordination effort across the country. Who's going to pay for that? States and localities sure don't want to. Okay, they're already kind of miffed about having to upgrade voting machines. Okay. They want good, clean elections, but they don't really see why that paper ballot with an ink pen X on it isn't good enough if you're out in a rural Colorado somewhere or something. Okay, so there's, there's issues there. The third reason I would think the direct popular election might have trouble, I think, is the strongest case against it in my view. The Electoral College requires presidential candidates to get a broad voting coalition. Okay. You can't count on just a few big centers of population to elect you. In the Electoral College, you've got to have people voting for you everywhere. Okay. You may only get 50% of the vote in Colorado, Florida, Ohio, Oregon, and Wisconsin, all swing states, I should note. But you've still gotten 50% of the vote in all of those states. With a direct popular election, there's no sense that you have to have a broad coalition. You could run just in the south, or just in the west, or just in the northeast, and run hard there and win lots and lots of votes in New York City to counterbalance all these poor plain states that don't have a lot of population. Um, but I would argue that that could cause more regional tension, perhaps, than there already is. Okay. A broad voting coalition means that our candidates are more moderate, and I think that's a good thing. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't strengths for this. Obviously, it's easy to explain. People would like it, so that's a plus. Third one is the so-called national popular vote. This one... <laughs> it has a glossy website if you want to look at it. It's called nationalpopularvote.com. Um, what they would do is say, 
okay, we're not going to really mess with the Electoral College, except that we are going to have states change how they allocate electors, which is their right to do, so that that state would give all of their electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote. So in 2000, okay, we count all the ballots, we double count the ballots in Florida and triple count them in Palm Beach County. Okay, Al Gore has 500,000 more votes than George Bush. Okay, Kansas, I'm sorry, you're voting for Al Gore. Okay, so the thought is, if enough states did this, you'd have a de facto um, majority, uh, a de facto per, uh, popular election, okay? Because states would just give their electoral votes to the popular vote winner. The advantage of this, of course, is it doesn't require any constitutional changes. States can decide to allocate these votes however they like, okay? Um, another advantage, perhaps, is that uh, it's very straightforward, okay? Just like the direct popular election. The national uh, popular election rather nationalpopularvote.com claims that it has been that is supported by 16% of all state legislators that's 1,181 if you're counting uh, there are a lot of state legislators out there um, and so they have great hopes that this might happen the bill actually passed in California and was vetoed by Governor Schwarzenegger uh, it has come up for vote in other states like Maryland uh, as well and um, here in Wisconsin um, Representative Dave Travis, if you're familiar with him, is a proponent of this, along with some other Madison area Democrats uh, as well. Okay. Question. Let's see if I understand that. Please. Um, the, the, those electoral votes would um, depend upon who won the national popular vote. That is correct. And then... Wouldn't that have the same problem as the direct popular election in that a person could win the national popular vote, but it might be more in one area than another? Yes, that, would, that drawback would be identical for this. One of the differences, though, is that the state is still paying for the election. That doesn't change at all. The money issues are the same as they are now. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a much lower barrier than having a real popular election. Okay, and we don't have to do messing around with the Constitution all this kind of thing. Um, the biggest problem with this, and the folks on that website have lots of positive reasons for it, and if you're interested, I encourage you to go there. The biggest problem I could see with it is that states often have things like the National or the Federal Voting Rights Act. Okay, so let's say you are in Kansas in 2000. Okay, your state votes like 70% for Bush, yet the state legislature is giving its electoral votes to Al Gore. You can make, I think, a credible case that your voting rights have been, you have been effectively really disenfranchised. I voted for George Bush, but Al Gore got our state electoral votes. That is somehow depriving me of my right to express my vote. I think, I mean, that would be a case-by-case -case basis. I think that's probably one of the weak, greatest weaknesses of that, is if your state very clearly did not vote for that person. Um, but... Again, it might fall to the Supreme Court's deference to state legislators saying whatever they want. Okay, so who knows. Last thing with that one, uh, claims of fraud would be very difficult to settle because with the national system, there's lots of voting localities out there. In 2000, for example, if Bush, Bush would have won the popular vote if he would have been able to find three votes in each precinct in the United States. Okay, that's not a lot of votes, and I guarantee you there are bad votes cast at every precinct in the United States. We just don't, don't, don't care about most of them because the, elect, the results would be the same. So having any kind of national popular system would encourage politicians to go vote digging wherever and every, wherever they could because there are so many places for error. Only in close elections, but we seem to be having those of late, so that could be another problem. Last one, and then I will wrap up quickly here. <coughs> the district plan. Okay, Advantages, it's more proportional, right? We here in the 8th District of Wisconsin vote for, well, I can't tell you because we're a swing district, but if you're down by Waukesha or whatever, you vote for, for John McCain or down by Mattis and you vote for Barack Obama. Okay, there's no questions about those, I don't think. Um, 
Those electoral votes go to the respective candidates. People in those districts are very happy they got their guy, uh, and that's great. And whoever wins the majority in the state gets two extra bonus. Pretty happy all around. So that's, that's perhaps a possibility. States have used it in the past, so we know it could work. Um, presidents might have even more incentive to campaign in a broad geographic area, which is one of the things I think the Electoral College does very well. Um, because every congressional district counts now. Okay, not just not just the ones that are in big population areas. Okay, remember that congressional districts are all mathematically equal in population at least one time right after they're drawn. Um, so there's an incentive to campaign in western Kansas. Okay, where today there really isn't any. Uh, because everyone counts uh, that way. So there's a plus. A disadvantage, of course, is that it weakens the role of states. You may not care about that. I thought it was one of the good things about the Electoral College. Uh, it might make the system more confusing to voters, however. Okay, people in Appleton, most of them are in the 8th Congressional District. There are a handful of houses down there on Calumet Street that are actually in the 6th Congressional District. Okay, people might become confused and think, well, what district am I in? That's worse in a district like this, which surrounds Barack Obama's home congressional district. He lives somewhere around here. This district is this giant C. Okay, right here is just I-294, and there's actually no one who lives here. Okay, now... If you ask the average person who lives in this part of Chicago what congressional district they're in, they aren't going to have a clue, okay, because it depends what house you live in on the block, well, who you're in, okay? Illinois has lots of these. They're really kind of, they're great for teaching purposes, but probably bad for representation purposes, so. Wouldn't that be their duty to find out? Well, they could find out, but... By allocating electoral votes this way, it would be kind of confusing. And most people try to reduce confusion in elections. This just makes it more difficult. Now, they can find out, and maybe they should find out, but this doesn't help them. <laughs> this doesn't help them at all. Figure that out. Okay. Why are lines drawn that way? To guarantee that certain kinds of people are elected. Okay, this district is drawn to guarantee that there will be Hispanic congressmen. These are Hispanic neighborhoods, okay? This one where my parents-in-law live, the 17th district, starts up here in Illinois, snakes its way down here, comes down here, makes a big crab leg around the middle part of the state. That's to guarantee a Republican will be elected in that district. And likewise, other districts in Illinois are drawn for Democrats. I mean, it's a nightmare from one point of view in Illinois. This, what this is to say is that a district voting system would be open to charges of gerrymandering. So you can guarantee the winner in Illinois based on how you draw your congressional district lines. So kind of a big problem. <clears throat> now, what would have happened if this system had been adopted by 2000? Okay, who would have won? George W. Bush. He won 228 of 435 con congressional districts. Al Gore won 207. Had we had the system, no one would have been counting ballots in Florida because Bush would have clearly been the winner. Okay, Which shows you that depending on the rules you set up, you can create very different outcomes. Okay, There is no right way to conduct an election. How you set the rules up in close races can determine the winner, and sometimes you don't know that until you look in hindsight. Okay, so that's something to keep in mind when people talk about election reform. There is no fair election that's fair to everybody. Ask Hillary Clinton. Okay? She doesn't think the Democratic primary system was fair. She won more votes than Barack Obama, and yet she's not on anybody's ticket that I could tell. Okay. But the system was set up to be very fair to candidates. Okay, so it's a fair system, but the outcome may or may not be what you want. Which of these would... Enhance opportunities for third parties or parties. Um, you could probably imagine the congressional system would be the best because then you'd only have to win a congressional district, okay, which would be much easier to do than to win a whole state. Okay, so you could pick up a bunch of congressional districts around the country rather than having to say we've got to win a majority of votes in Texas, okay, for example. <clears throat> you may still not win, but you can at least make a showing uh, at it. 
quickly, I will conclude and then take whatever other questions you have. Um, oh, here's the map. Okay, those are the ones George Bush won. You see that Al Gore was his support was concentrated in places you might expect. Okay. Now remember that these congressional districts are all equal in population, and because some of them are smaller, it kind of distorts the effect. Because uh, right down here, there's lots and lots of congressional districts. But George Bush had more support in more places than Al Gore did, which lend to that. Okay. <coughs> Finally, this is why I would keep the Electoral College, if it were up to me, which it is never going to be, so you can sit safely out there. Okay. <coughs> The Electoral College encourages two political parties. And the reason I think this is a good thing, I don't contribute to any political parties, so they haven't paid me off. Um, I just follow them. Uh, <clears throat> having two national political parties encourages moderate candidates. Okay, you may not believe that about Barack Obama or George Bush or John McCain or, or pick your, your favorite villain out there. Okay, but those candidates are a lot more moderate than they could be. Okay, you could have people like Tom Tecrento from Colorado, who is as anti-immigrant as any modern politician running for president. Okay, or someone really liberal on the other side of the spectrum. Okay, and they could be put up as a presidential candidate. Because the Electoral College gives zero electoral votes to the loser, a rational politician will want to have at least a 50% chance of winning. So you get two, right? Theoretically, that's 50-50, and that allows for some difference. Now, those people who run for president out of one of two political parties have to keep a large voting coalition together. Uh, Barack Obama has to keep many of the interest groups that make up the Democratic Party happy, the unions, the latte crowd, as they're called, like the young, without making any of them really mad. John McCain has to keep... Christian conservatives, fiscal conservatives, defense hawks, all happy without alienating any of them. So they have to adopt positions that aren't terribly extreme, at least for their own political parties. Uh, I think that's a good thing. We're a nation of many interests. When you put one person at the head of 220 million adults, 300 some odd million Americans, someone's always going to be mad at you. So you might as well get someone who's going to be somewhat moderate. Okay. Moderate enough for a lot of people. Okay. Um, <clears throat> finally, the last reason I think it's a good idea is that the Electoral College preserves states as a real working entity. Even today, most people think of themselves as someone from Wisconsin because Jim Doyle's governor, he makes decisions that affect me directly. The Electoral College kind of emphasizes that, that John McCain, when he's up in Green Bay, has to talk about how, what he's going to do for Wisconsin rather than what he's going to do for Green Bay. And I think that's, that's a benefit because candidates have to think about how they'll govern states that are very different uh, from one another rather than just seeking voters. So to conclude, I would say that the Electoral College helps promote the nation, a, divide, a geographically diverse coalition of voters bringing a president to office rather than just a whole bunch of individuals saying, I want this guy or that gal. Okay. Thank you very much. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.